You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joined in God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Today we're going to be talking about the heart, um, our human heart, and not the organ that pumps blood, um, that pumps 100,000 times a day, 3 billion times over a lifetime to deliver oxygen and nutrients to our body. Not, not that heart. And not what um, our culture calls heart metaphorically um, in the symbolic sense of like our emotion, like everything emotional, everything that comes in a Hallmark card, not that heart either. What I want to get to is what the ancient world, what, the, what scripture would call the heart and the metaphor of the heart. And it's not quite the same as today, today's idea. It's got more of the idea that um, maybe like what we see when we watch the Olympics and we say that that athlete competes with heart, right? Or, or maybe an artist puts his heart and his soul into that music or into that piece of artwork, right? It's this idea of a driving force, you know, something that, that drives us. It gives us direction and it gives us motivation. It's the center of our love. It's the center of our desire. It's got this idea of a hunger or a thirst needs sustenance, right? You can fill it up, but eventually you will need to fill it up again because it's, it's like a hunger. And so there's this language in Scripture of God's heart. And, you know, it's got this same idea um, of what we see in God's heart. It leads who he is. It drives him to do what he does. And so since this heart idea, this metaphor is central to who we are, it makes sense that God wants our heart, right? He, he wants our hearts. He, he's concerned about that driving force. He's concerned about what motivates us. He wants us to give with a cheerful heart. He wants us to worship with our whole heart, right? He, he made us in his image, and he knows that our heart drives us. He knows that it can be filled with him, or with some other idea, some other goal, some other thing that will never fill us. And so there's a lot of talk throughout Scripture about the heart, about, um, we hear about Pharaoh's heart, right? His, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, or we hear about uh, the prophet's hearts that were broken, or we hear about David's heart rejoicing, or David's heart when he mourns. We hear warnings against letting certain things into our hearts. Uh, there's commands about guarding our hearts and to put God's word into our hearts. And so the heart leads us, right? And it can be good or bad. The heart can be changed. It can be trained. It can be broken. It can be renewed. It can be glad or downcast. It can be full or empty. It can be hardened or open. It can be proud or humble. St. Augustine has a quote from his confessions. It says this. It says, You have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. He understands that we are teleological creatures. It's a big word. Telos is a Greek word for goal or purpose or end. It's meaning that innately we are creatures that, that live on a quest, that live towards something, that have a goal, something that drives us and motivates us towards something. You might say that we have a mission. Right? We, we, we hunger to do whatever that is, whatever our heart is set on, whatever that we define as the good life, right? We, and we all have different de definitions of what the good life is, but that drives us towards that good life. That's what the heart does. And more than just our own personal good life, we want, want some version of society to have that good life. We desire, we hunger for, we seek, right? We, we, we might say we seek a kingdom, the question is, which kingdom, right? Which story are you buying into? Which story 
is it that your heart desires? What does your heart yearn for? What are you going to give first place in your heart to? What are you passionate about? What is that good life? Is it found in Jesus? Is it found in joining him on mission and bringing about that kingdom, his kingdom? Which I would say is the only true good life. Or if we're honest, is it something else, right? Is it some other story that we believe, some other story that we believe to be the good life? Is it materialism, right? Is it clothes and cars and jewelry? Or is it money? Or is it work or power or popularity or recognition or fun or pleasure, drugs, sex, drinking, or, or even the good stuff, right? Like exercise and healthy food and friends. Like, like what is taking first place in your heart? Our heart is the center of our loves. And in Scripture, we find three Greek words that are interpreted love in the English language. First, there's, there's phileo love, right? Philo love, this, this brotherly love, this friendship love. There's also this word eros, which we would call a romantic love. It has to do with desire and attraction. It's where we get the English word erotic from. And then there's this word agape. Right? Agape is this unconditional, sacrificial, self-giving I want the best for others type of love. So in our culture, we tend to, in, in the church, we tend to avoid this eros word, right? We tend to avoid using this word because we live in a culture that is over-sexualized and pornography addiction is more than we'd like to admit. And so, we, so because we live in that culture, it's hijacked that term. And we don't like to talk about it in church. We don't like to talk about the eros love, but here's the truth, you can't get rid of it, right? God created it. It's part of who we are. It's part of how we love as a human. It's part of your humanity that God created and called good. And even though culture has hijacked it, it's part of the thing that God is redeeming in the cross, right? All things. God is reconciling all things to himself. And that Eros type of love is part of that all things. And so when Eros is made right, when Eros is good that God created, I would call it rightly ordered attraction and desire for God and the things that he desires, right? It's rightly ordered agape. It's driven, it's passionate agape. So Augustine's quote and the insight that he goes on to say, he says that because we are made to love the one who made and loves us, right? First John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. We will find rest when our loves are rightly ordered to that ultimate end. Right? So when our loves are lined up with God's love and with, and with God's concern for this world, that's when our hearts find rest. That's when things are rightly ordered. But on the other side, he also notes that since our hearts are made to find their end in God, we will experience a besetting anxiety and restlessness when we try to love substitutes. Right? You have a heart. You are human. You can't not love. Right? That double negative. You can't not love. So the question isn't whether you will love something and give it the highest position in your heart. The question is what will you give the highest position in your heart? What will you give the ultimate highest love in your heart? And so today I want to look at a few things. I want to look at God's heart. I want to look at a few characters in the Bible um, and see about how this heart works, what God's heart is, and how he cares about our heart. And so to look at God's heart, what we see is a God who always hears the cry of the oppressed. And he's always moved to action. God is constantly with the last, the least, the left out of society. 
His heart is to heal broken hearts, right? His heart is to give sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to love the unlovely, to feed the hungry, give water to the thirsty. And it's this heart that moves him into action. And so I want to look at some pieces of the Exodus story so that we can see both God's heart and take a look at the heart of Moses as it grows throughout this story. We can get a picture of God's heart as this story begins with the Israelite people crying out, groaning because of the injustice, because of the oppression they are receiving from the Egyptians. They've been enslaved, they've been forced to make bricks, uh, and then forced into all kinds of forced labor, and God hears their cry, and he is moved to act. And the way that he acts, and another aspect of his heart, what drives him and how he operates, is that he calls and he sends. He is a calling and sending God. He always works through us. He always works through humans. And so we see his heart, and we see that he approaches Moses to join him on this mission to rescue Israel from slavery and the oppression in Egypt. And so we pick up in chapter 3, verse 7. It says, Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and heard uh, and I've heard them crying out because of their oppressors, and I know about their sufferings. The Israelites' cry for help has come to me, and I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, go, I am sending you to Pharaoh, so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And so we see God's heart here, right? He hears the cry, and he's going to do something about it. Now next, we're going to see Moses' heart. Moses never wanted this job. He's not interested. God's calling them, offering them this job, and Moses is like, I don't really want the job. So uh, verse 11, Moses asked God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God answers, I will certainly be with you, and this will be the sign to you that I have sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this mountain. And then Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And so at the beginning of this, Moses is like, well, who am I? And by the end of this, God is saying, I am, right? Like as if to say, I know who you are. I know who I am. I know who you can be with me. Join me on this mission. But Moses continues with these excuses, right? He continues not wanting this job. Chapter 4, verse 1, then Moses answered, What if they won't believe me and will not obey me, but say, The Lord didn't appear to you? And then down to verse 10, Moses replied to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent. I'm not a good speaker, right? I, I didn't pass public speaking in college. Like, this isn't my strong suit. You want me to go speak, and I'm, that's not me. And then down to verse 13, he's out of excuses and he just says, Lord, send someone else. Right? Like, and, and we see Moses' heart in this. He, he never wanted this job. He, his heart wasn't for the Israelite people. His heart wasn't for God's mission. He wasn't interested. And we see it in some of the conversations he has throughout this process. Even though he didn't want to, he did. And he's with God in this. But he, but he talks to God sometimes. And like in chapter 5, he says, this is your people, God, not my people. He, he doesn't claim them. Right? He says, this is your people, this people, those people that you sent me to, those people, they're complaining. But then we skip on down uh, to chapter 32. 
after the plagues, after the crossing of the Red Sea, God had delivered them from the Egyptians. They're on this journey through the desert, and they're complaining, right? They're saying things were better off back in Egypt. And Moses goes up to this mountain to receive the tablets of law from the Lord that the, law was, that the Lord was giving. And while he's up there, the people get impatient, and they start to make idols. They make this golden calf to worship. And so God sees this, and we pick up in chapter 32, verse 7. The Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once for your people that you brought up out of the land of Egypt. They have acted corruptly. So, so it was Moses saying, God, this is your people, those people that you let out of Egypt. And now it's God saying to Moses, Moses, your people, <laughs> the ones you let out of Egypt. Like, Moses, whose idea was this anyway? <laughs> Who said this was a good idea, right? They've bowed down to this idol, and the Lord is very upset about this to the point that he wants to destroy this people. And now it's Moses convincing God to stay in line with this mission. It's Moses convincing God to forgive these people, right? Before it was Moses saying these things to God, and now Moses' heart has changed, right? Basically, um, Moses is, is telling God to forgive these people. We get down to verse 30 of chapter 32. After Moses goes down and sees what the people have done for himself, verse 30 says, The following day Moses said to the people, you have committed a grave sin. Now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I will be able to atone for your sin. Atone, like that language that maybe I'll be able to take your punishment. Maybe I'll be able to get God to forgive you. Verse 31, so Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, these people have committed a grave sin. They have made a God of gold for themselves. Now, if you would only forgive their sin, but if not, please erase me from the book you have written. And that line, please erase me from the book, that's a uh, euphemism for take me instead. Right? He goes from not wanting anything to do with these people in this situation, in this job, but now after being in it, after walking with them, his heart has changed to the point that he's willing to suffer in their place. He's willing to die for them. How did we get here? How did Moses' heart change this much to become like the heart of God? And there's this verse um, Exodus 13, that I think sums it up, and it's a verse that we would just skip over if we were reading through this story, but it caught my attention. Exodus 13, 17, it says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. Right? He didn't lead them through the short, easy road. And that's what made Moses' heart change. Right? That, that difficult journey that long path, that just that God's going to be with us. Like, he doesn't get the whole story. He doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow. He doesn't know when the cloud is going to move, when the fire is going to move, and it's time to move on in this journey in the desert, following this God who says, I am with you. Right? It's not an easy path. It's the difficult way. It's the long way. But his heart has changed because of this difficult, long journey sometimes I think that um, things that sometimes we call blessing, right, because they make our life easier, um, are actually maybe attacks from the enemy because they cause our hearts to be comfortable. They cause our hearts to be complacent. And it's this long, difficult journey that shapes our heart into what God has for us. And so Moses' heart was changed to the point that he was willing to suffer in their place. He was willing to die 
for them. And we see Moses' heart change. We see God's heart for his people. Now I want to look at how God desires our heart. Let's look at the Gospel of John to see how Jesus understands that if he's got any chance with us, he needs our heart. So in literature, there's weight to the first words spoken by a character, right? The first words of a character in a story sets the tone for who that character is and what their character is going to be about. And so the Gospel of John is this brilliant book with all sorts of subtle meaning just beneath the surface of how, how, how he numbers the miracles or how he uses specific words rather than other words. But the first words of Jesus found in chapter 1, verse 38, come when the, the, John the Baptist is out in the desert and he's got some followers and he's pointing out, look, it's the Lamb of God. This is Jesus. This is the one who you should follow. And the story goes that two of John's, John's disciples go to follow Jesus. And, and this looks like an awkward picture to me because um, you have these two apostles start following Jesus. You know, they weren't invited to follow Jesus and they didn't really tell Jesus that they were following him. So there's just these two dudes following Jesus. And I, and I picture it like Jesus turns around and they're like, oh, it's a nice day. Like, like as if they weren't following him, you know, like, like this, just this awkward picture of, so what are you doing today? I don't know. And um, so Jesus turns and notices that they are following him. And this is where we find the first words of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of John. And it's the question, what are you looking for, right? He turns to him, he sees that they're following him. It's like, what do you want? What are you looking for? And that is a question about their heart, right? God cares about our heart. So what are you looking for, right? Sometimes we don't know what we're looking for. Sometimes we think we know and we're wrong. And sometimes like Bono or U2, we still haven't found what we're looking for, right? But, but for Jesus and the author here, John, the importance of these words uh, of Jesus is that it matters, right? Your wants, your desires, the condition of your heart matters to Jesus. And he understands that in the way that he teaches and the way that he leads, that he is shaping a heart, right? He is shaping desires and longings and that drive and that direction and that motivating center within, of, within us all that we call our heart. So Jesus knows that he wants them to desire this new kingdom that he came to establish, right? Where the poor are taken care of, where the blind receive sight, where the oppressed and the oppressor find freedom, where love for God and love for neighbor is the central guiding ethic in all we do and how we live. So, so his teaching and this invitation to come and follow him are how desires and how longings are shaped. It's that long, difficult road following Jesus, right? It's, it's, it's following his example as he leads. It's, it's the habits and the practices that he shows them as they do life together that shaped their hearts. It shaped their hearts to long for and to love the same things that Jesus loved, right? To have their hearts transformed to be like the heart of Jesus. And so their answer to this question, what do you want? If it was, well, we want your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? Like if they said that, Jesus would have been like, okay, cool, go, go live that out. Go, go let your heart lead you into making that a reality. <laughs> but it's not what, he, what they said. <laughs> and, and, the, and the answer, like, it's just strange and awkward still, right? Like, oh, well, where are you staying, right? Like, it's just this, like, I don't know what to say, um, where are you staying? And Jesus is like, well, I guess you got to start somewhere. Um, that'll have to do. Come and follow me and you will see. And you're going to get more than that. Like, you don't even know what you want yet, guys. 
See, Jesus doesn't just redeem our mind, right? He doesn't just redeem our thoughts and our ideas and have our theology all nice and neat and wrapped up. But he, he redeems our whole being, right? Our head, our heart, our hands. Christ takes captive our minds, but also our cardia, our heart, our drive, our desires, our affections. So it's this follow me invitation, this watch me, do what I do, develop these habits. That's how their hearts are trained and changed and their desires become more and more like God's, like Jesus's. And so if our heart is this guidance system, right, it points us and it propels us towards that goal, towards that kingdom. And so when we use language like Jesus is in our hearts or the Holy Spirit dwells within our hearts, that's because our hearts need to be changed by Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, and they need to align with his kingdom and his life and his goals and his mission. So we, when we begin to want that and desire that and hunger for that, and so when our hearts are trained or taught what to desire, right, we, we learn what we love. And the truth about you and me is that we learn by habit. So if our hearts point us like a compass and propel us like a wind, it's important to calibrate those tools. Right? It's important to calibrate that compass regularly with habits, right? Our hearts don't change by learning more information about what we should be doing. But when we enter into life with Jesus and practice the things that he practiced and we develop the same habits, that's how our hearts change. It's transformation. It's not just a lecture, right? It's not just me talking to you. It's more of an apprenticeship. It's joining Jesus in what he is doing. And so when Jesus teaches us how to love, he invites us to follow him by copying him, by mimicking him, not just thinking or observing, but by doing, practicing. It's why we gather, right? It's why we meet around this table. It's why we recite our core values. And so when we say our core values, when we say the piece about protecting one another's personal values, it's because those personal values are kingdom values that have now become personal. Right? We believe that we, we are being transformed to want those things. And so our hearts can also be led astray. Right? If, if we have the wrong story, if we have the wrong vision of the good life, right? if we believe some other story, the American dream or materialism or selfishness or pleasure or drugs or popularity or power, our heart can be led astray. Because when we practice these habits, they're not just something we do, they do something to us. And so these values, these personal values, they've been conformed, they've changed, they've been made new, they've been born again as kingdom values that are now personal. And he says, Jesus tells us, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. You will be filled when your thirst, when your hunger, when your heart is for righteousness. But if it's for something else, whatever that is, even if you get that, whatever that is, in abundance, you might still be lacking. You won't be filled. So Jesus leads and teaches and shows us how to be human, right? With his love, with his passion, with his emotion. He teaches us in a way that informs our mind, but it doesn't leave out the rest of our humanity, right? The spiritual, the social, the physical, our head and our heart. Our entire being is transformed into his likeness. Now, sometimes our hearts can be broken, right? And, and, and what do we do with those broken hearts? I, um, 
I appreciate uh, music. I really like music, and a lot of my music, my favorite music, tends to come from artists with broken hearts, right? They, they write from a place that has, where their hearts have been broken, right? Like, he thought she loved him, but she never did, <laughs> you know? And, like, his heart is just shattered, or, or he's not the guy she thought he was, and there's jealousy, and there's betrayal in this music. And so what we really want, when, we're, when we want our favorite musician or our favorite artist to create more art, what we're really asking for is for their heart to be broken or for tragedy to strike them, right? Like, I feel bad about that, but I really like their music. Like, like, like I, I'm sorry, I want your heart to be broken, but could you write more music, right? Like, like that's where art comes from sometimes, right? It's the cry of the artist against the injustice. And I think God is in that art. Like, God joins in that cry when, when there's injustice. And that's why, like, I, I'm drawn to this art. Um, but what breaks your heart, right? Like, like what is it? Because there's this unfolding story and your actions, your response to your broken heart might be what allows God to work towards, breaking, to, towards fixing what breaks his heart, right? Towards this kingdom vision that he has. Um, I remember my first broken heart. Uh, I was in fourth grade. Um, and I wasn't interested in girls yet, but they were interested in me, which who can blame them, right? Like, but... Um, <laughs> But um, her name was Kathy, and there were, note, there were notes passed and the check yes or no type stuff, and, and Kathy liked me, and I was like, okay, I don't know about this, but okay, like, I guess I'm in fourth grade, I got to start at some time. Um, so, so me and Kathy were, were, I don't even know what we call it, dating, um, but it just meant we talked less, like we, we didn't even acknowledge one another, or we looked at each other across the room, and I did one of these, you know? I don't, I don't know what I did in fourth grade. But um, I remember that my mom took us on a date. I invited her on a date, and we went to see Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the 1990 version, right? Like, I was a good date, right? Like, this was awesome. Like, she was lucky, she was lucky to have me. And so... Um, and so, but this, this was great. And, and I remember even like, like, I don't consider it my first kiss, but at the skating rink, because I was an awesome roller skater, um, we, um, somebody pushed our faces together and like, that's what we considered our first kiss, even though it like hurt. It was just like, I think I had a black eye. Um, <laughs> but then Kevin in, 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 enters the picture, um, my friend, my best friend Kevin at the time. Um, and Kevin likes Kathy, and all of a sudden Kathy likes Kevin, and all of a sudden there's no more Garrett. And Garrett's at home with a broken heart, right? Like, like this fourth grade who's not really interested in being in this situation in the first place. Like, all of a sudden my heart's broken, and I remember like punching a pillow, like, and screaming, like, ah, I don't know what I was doing. Like, I think it was a broken heart, but, but that's what my first broken heart was, um, which is weird. just a strange story. I'm sorry. Now... Now I've grown up and my heart breaks for things that matter, I think, um, a little bit more, right? Like, like our heart breaks collectively as community for the, for the um, AIDS orphans and the war orphans in Kenya who, who we've done a good job at sponsoring, right? Like, like we met that goal. We, we've built an orphanage. Like that's where my heart breaks. When there's people in the world that don't have access to clean water, right, that's where my heart breaks. Uh, I've been doing life with this community of Williamsburg Christian Church for a long time. And so when your heart breaks, that's when my heart breaks, right? My, my heart breaks for friends that I've lost to cancer. My heart breaks for my friends who want to get pregnant, but they just can't. My heart breaks for this broken world that we live in. So what do we do with that? Like, what do we do when our hearts are broken, when our hearts feel like they're useless, like we're not going to be able to get anything out of this anymore because it's just torn to pieces? 
I want to look at Nehemiah. In Nehemiah chapter 1 and 2, we find that in broken hearts, there is possibilities. We find Nehemiah in exile, right? The Israelites were taken into captivity by the Babylonians 100, 100 years earlier. And since then, the Assyrians have come in and taken over the Babylonians. And Nehemiah is still in exiled land. And he finds himself under King Artaxerxes in the city of Susa, um, where he's aware of his homeland, right? He's heard stories of the land of his fathers. And he wants to know more, but he doesn't have Twitter, and he doesn't have internet, and he doesn't have the news. And so his brother is traveling, and his brother has come from Jerusalem to visit Nehemiah in the, in the city that Nehemiah was in. And so Nehemiah wants to hear, and so he asks, like, like, tell me about this city. I've heard all these stories about this majestic Jerusalem. Tell me about it. But what he heard wasn't good news, right? The city wasn't majestic. The people were in disgrace. The city was in ruins and had been burned to the ground. And along with it, Nehemiah's heart is broken and lies in ruins. So we pick up in verse 3 of chapter 1. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, who are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept for some days. I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. His broken heart led him to praying and fasting for days, right? And this chapter ends with this statement, I was cupbearer to the king. In other words, how can I use my position and my circumstance and my resources in this direction of doing something about this thing that breaks my heart? It wasn't, I was just a cupbearer, so there was nothing I could do. See, cupbearer to the king was a very high position, a very trusted position. Position. This was the guy who made sure that the king's food was safe. Right? He was the guinea pig taste tester. Right? If the king's food was poison, Nehemiah would be the first to die. And so he was in the presence of the king a lot, which could be dangerous because kings are paranoid that somebody's going to assassinate them, somebody's going to poison their food, somebody's going to try to take their throne. And so this paranoid king, depending on his mood, might just kill those closest to him at any moment. And so Nehemiah finds himself in sort of a don't speak unless spoken to situation, right? Because he didn't want to die. So he couldn't just come out and ask, hey, king, can I go back to my city and help rebuild this wall? So Nehemiah is in the presence of the king, and the visible state of Nehemiah's broken heart in the king's presence caused the king to inquire about why Nehemiah was so sad. Chapter 2, verse 2, the king says, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Yes, you're right. And it says, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. This is how you start conversations with the king. May the king live forever, right? Like you don't want to, don't kill me. So may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins? and its gates have been destroyed by fire. The king said to me, what is it you want? And boom, there's Nehemiah's opening. There's his chance, right? He, so he throws up this flare prayer. It says, so I prayed to the Lord, <laughs> and then I answered the king. And he answers the king with this request, like, can I go there? Can I, can I go back? And not only that, can you, 
guarantee my safe travel? Can you give me some guards and some passports to get through the places, the territories that I need to pass through? And not only that, will you supply me with the supplies that I need to rebuild this wall? Like all of these like carefully crafted but bold asking the king to give him all this stuff, and the king did. Right? He lets Nehemiah go. He sends guards and he sends letters to the kings of the territories that he needs to cross through. And he gives them gift cards to Home Depot so that he can buy everything he needs to, to build this wall. It wasn't really gift cards to Home Depot. It was letters for access to the king's forest for the lumbers and supplies that he would need. And Nehemiah does it. Like he rebuilds this wall. But, but it wasn't the short road. Right? He faced opposition building this wall. There were times that while they were building, they had a weapon in one hand and a tool in the other hand because they were being attacked by those who opposed anything good for Israel. Right? So opposition rises, but the city is rebuilt in 52 days. Nehemiah completes the task in 52 days. So Nehemiah's broken heart led him to rebuild a wall. And later on in God's story, we find that that's a pretty significant part of God's story. That wall, that city that Nehemiah took part in rebuilding, Jesus approaches this Jerusalem and he weeps over it. Jesus approaches this Jerusalem and enters through those gates on a donkey. And a week later, he's crucified. See, if Nehemiah did nothing, Right? If he did nothing with that broken heart, if he became bitter or angry or if he just got over it and forgot about it, he would have missed this opportunity to be a part of something much bigger than himself, much bigger than just the wall, much bigger than just the time that he lived in, but this whole unfolding story of what God is doing in the world. Nehemiah, doing something about his broken heart, fixed something that was broken in the world. And it allowed God to do something about the things that broke God's heart. Right? God's broken heart is leading to the reconciliation of all things. God's broken heart leads all of our broken hearts towards being fixed. Right? That's what God wants for our broken heart. This week while I was writing this sermon, um, Kevin Garcia, who it was a student in the youth group long ago, I got to walk with him through middle school and high school. Um, I, I love that kid. <laughs> um, he posted this on Instagram. Um, and, it, and it's a little graphic about, uh, though you are sorrowful, you, you, your sorrow will be turned into joy. And it's from John 16 that we did during Scripture in Silence. And his comment underneath is this. It says, I got some pretty bad news yesterday. Nothing life or death, but devastating all the same. I feel sad, angry, highly disappointed, worried, and all of those other complicated emotions that come with standing on the precipice of the unknown. And it's these moments when the practice of my faith have been instrumental in my continual engagement with life. It is easy to let the darkness overwhelm me, but the words of Jesus speak about something better. The mysterious concept of how sorrow turning into joy, that somehow even in the worst, good is still going to win. The joy of following Christ is, is not to forget about the sorrow or the pain. The joy of following Christ is to fully acknowledge how much life hurts, both in the microcosm of our own individual existence and in our connection to the whole of humanity. Faith is not a promise of being anesthetized to your hurt, but faith is the assurance that God sits with us and holds our hand 
through it as we navigate how to continue. He says, I'm scared. But more than scared, I'm expectant of bigger, brighter, bolder, more beautiful things because there is sorrow. And on the other side of it, after sitting with it and fully experiencing the depths of my aching heart, I have the capacity to experience the heights of joy. And that promise is something no one can take. Take heart, friend. You are going to be okay. That's my Kevin. <laughs> um, and I commented under this, right? I commented, I said, Kevin, I'm preaching about broken hearts and possibilities this week, and you pretty much just preached my sermon. And, uh, and then he commented under, and he says, well, I learned from the best. And he calls me rabbi, which means teacher. Um, and I, I like that. And so talk about my heart, you know, being filled up with this, you know, ex-student of the youth group who's gone on and, and is doing great things. Um, So our hearts are broken sometimes, but there's this joy. This, this sorrow will be turned into joy. And so just as the first words of Jesus in the Gospel of John were, what do you want? Like, like what is it? What is your heart's desire? We find post-resurrection, right, the first words of Jesus. We find Mary approaching the tomb and not finding his body there. So it's in John chapter 20. She's crying, right? She didn't find Jesus' body. She's brokenhearted. She doesn't know what's going on. And she turns and she sees Jesus, but she didn't know it was him, right? She didn't recognize him. Her broken heart was blinding her to this, to this fact. And so Jesus says to her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Right, that same, what do you want? Like, like who is it? What, what is it that you're looking for? What is it that your heart longs for? And supposing he was the gardener, which is another subtle little beautiful thing that John does, right? The gardener who created the Garden of Eden. Yes, this is the gardener, right? This is the creator of your heart, Mary. Sir, if you've removed him, tell me where you have put him and I will take him away. And then Jesus says her name. Then Jesus says Mary and her eyes are open. Like That's all it took, like just to hear your name come out of his mouth. I don't know if that's all it's going to take for you today, but understand that your name is being spoken by the creator of the garden. The creator of your heart speaks your name, right? Like your name rolls off of his lips. And she responds, Rabbi, and she embraces him. Her heart that was sorrow turns into joy. And that's my prayer for you today, that you might hear your name roll off of your Savior's lips and that you might exclaim, Rabbi, Savior, Lord of all creation, throw your arms around him and continue weeping, but weeping for joy because that sorrow turned in to joy. So can you hear it? Can you hear your name roll off of his lips? Right? Deborah, can you hear it? Can you hear your name? Jacob. Jessica, David, your name rolls off of your Savior's lips. And that's when your broken heart, that sorrow can be turned into joy. 